0: In the 70s, almost half the nation were council tenants. Then came Margaret Thatcher's monumental change, giving tenants the right to buy their homes at big discounts. Nice to go up in the world. (laughs) What do you mean by nice to go up in the world? Well, you know, some people look down on you, you know. Oh, you live in a council house, and um, that's not good. But uh, when you own your own property, you took up in the road a little bit. They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long to as do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my end
1: Hello and welcome to Untelevised the podcast, the podcast where we explore all things social change and we do that by looking at the world around us, what it currently is and looking at where we might want it to be, how we might want it to look and then taking journeys (laughs) to discover how we get from one point to the next and what part we might all play in that process. My name's Faseo, and I'm one of your hosts and my co-host is Mona. How are you Mona? It feels like these weeks have just flown by, right? It's almost hard to distinguish days from one another.
0: Yeah, and even sort of um, the way we've tried to kind of break this season into like topics and yet finding that we just actually, it's all so big and it's also interlinked that we're having some quite similar conversations with people and hoping that we can at least draw out some slightly different Elements, whilst recognizing that it's obviously all interlinked and similar for a reason, that that the, our guests' experiences might be similar for a reason, but, yeah, I mean, I can't
1: believe we've reached the end i know the fourth episode of the fourth season yes <laughs> makes me happy because my favorite number is four as an aside but is it you have a favorite number i do that's i know it's so strange it I don't, is strange yeah, i feel like
0: that's the kind of thing maybe you had when you were like five years old or four stuck, years old stuck, i guess stuck with me it's stuck with you i've never thought to have a favorite number but fair enough um <laughs> fine so we're on fiseo's favorite number and we're gonna try and and do it um some justice Um, but yeah, we're ending, I guess, on a high, we're trying to end on a high. We've taken you through quite a journey of, um, land politics and, um, you know, the movement for land justice. And we've explored kind of, what it means for people not to have land, what it then means for them to have land and how they might acquire it, how we might create a sense of belonging and community and collective ownership, and how we might heal the traumas we faced from so much of the damage that's been caused to us in our struggles for land, and how we might also heal the land which has been damaged so much by us in the process. And we're sort of ending with, well, you know, hopefully giving you some, you know, giving us all some hope, but looking at what it means to kind of move beyond, I guess, a belief system um, and a world which sees land as scarce and that views land as something to fight over or as something which actually there isn't enough of for all of us when actually there are many people that believe that there is um, and how we kind of start to look at land as a um, source of abundance and as something that we should all be collectively enjoying and benefiting from Um, and as per usual I guess you know probably moving beyond the current capitalist model that we're in um, which creates that scarcity but yeah we seem
1: to always end up here it sounds almost utopic but it shouldn't be right it should just be that should just be yeah it should should just just be be. yeah (laughs) full stop (laughs) end of sentence (laughs) um but yeah um As usual, let's define a few things so that we can jump into our conversations. So to start our learn section this episode, I'm going to give an honorary definition to the word abundance because I think when we were looking into this episode, we actually sat and said, that's kind of abstract even though it seems quite simple as a concept it's quite abstract so i actually googled the cambridge dictionary definition of abundance and it literally says the situation in which there is more than enough of something and examples where there was an abundance of food at the wedding or this team has talent in abundance and i promise that was an actual example i'm not referring to us <laughs> <laughs> that you can make your own judgment on that <laughs> um, so um in that vein let's briefly explore the situation in the uk so that we can have context to whether there is an abundance of land um in the uk where we are based and where a lot of our conversation this week is situated um so according to the land cover atlas of the united kingdom which was published in 2017 of people live in towns or cities, but only around 6% of the UK is actually built on. So that means that a whopping 94% of the UK is unbuilt. So of that 94%, most of it almost 60 percent is used for agriculture so things like animals grazing or growing crops 35 percent is natural land so stuff like lakes rivers and mountains and 2.5 percent is green urban spaces so things like parks inside of cities so it always shocks me when i hear these statistics like 94 percent of the uk is unbuilt on because living in a city of London it feels super 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 built up so I actually looked into it and the city of London is the most built up local authority in the UK 98% of the area is built on so it kind of explains why I feel like that but I also do acknowledge how quickly it changes once you get on the train once you get in the car you don't have to drive very far before you're just seeing fields of sheep and cows so yeah it kind of resonates with me there um so lots of numbers there but the essence is there is literally an abundance of land there's literally an abundance of land that's currently not being used by architecture where people are living um and there's a great interactive map that we'll link to in the description that kind of shows you that more clearly um another good thing for context of my conversation this week is just looking at home ownership so in that built land what does that look like so most figures show that around 65% of people in the UK or in England rather, are homeowners. owners. Um, this is a rate that's falling. Um, it used to be slightly higher. The all time high was 73% of people. So almost almost three quarters of people um, in 2003, but things like austerity and um, rising costs and stuff have meant that that's fallen. But importantly and interestingly to me, attitudes um, show that the vast majority of people, if they had free choice, would want to buy their own home and would want to own their own home. And that currently sits at 86% of people. So the vast majority of British people would like to own their own home. Now, Thatcher and Thatcherism is also mentioned in my interview and basically how Thatcher, who was a previous prime minister, contributed to this conversation, is she pioneered something called the right to buy. And that essentially gave people that were living in council-owned accommodation the right to purchase their property and included incentives like uh, 33 to 50% discounts of the market value of the house, better mortgage rates and stuff like that. Since its introduction, more than 1.8 million council homes have been sold in the UK, meaning that they're no longer um, commonly owned, they're owned privately by people. Um, It's a massively polarising policy and it has both supporters and people that think it's the worst thing that's ever happened. Supporters tend to argue that it gives people aspirations, it's allowed working class people the opportunity to own their homes and improve their financial circumstances, whereas opponents say that it basically amounts to flogging of public assets and by giving to people personally we're taking away from the public pool of resources Um, and it's caused things like distortion in house prices and it's substantially contributed to the current housing crisis that we have because by taking away publicly owned homes obviously that stock isn't hasn't also been replenished at the same rate it's been sold.
0: Right. So lots of stats there um, and moving perhaps a little bit more into international themes. um, My conversation this week um, kind of, I guess, definitely is rooted in and draws upon what many of you might have heard about, which is something we call the Arab-Israeli conflict. um, You know, the fight over land, the fight over Palestine. This is a subject that is so complex and so deep and has such a history to it that it's not something that we're going to go into in this episode, but we very, very much would encourage people to go and look into. Um, As always, there are massively opposing views. Um, And my guest today actually is someone who, again, is looking at how um, that how, again, we move away from this idea of, of land as a source of conflict. Um, and again, how there, it might, it's possible for all of us um, to be safe and belong and share land in abundance. Um, but in terms of a couple of terms that probably would be useful in, for that conversation is two different things. With, well, is something called Colonialism and then also settler colonialism. Now, Colonialism is essentially when one group of people from one place go to another place, um, go to another I guess country, or maybe before they were actually defined countries go to another place and sort of occupy it, like take over it, you know, start to use its resources, you know, off you know, through force, maybe make people who live there kind of work for them or live under their rules. So you will have heard about the British Empire, the French Empire, so that's where people have gone. Far afield and elsewhere, and taking control over countries in Africa, for example, in, in South America, um, in Asia, etc. And it's become, it the, the countries have sat under, for example, British rule, um, even though, like, you know, Britain is thousands of miles away and has a completely different, you know, government and so on. Now, settler colonialism, which we do hear about today is when the people who've gone and occupied well who've gone and taken over this other land stay there they actually set up their you know they actually decide to occupy the place physically as opposed to perhaps occupying it through their laws and their f- governance and you know from but that in a way that can also be done technically from afar so settler colonialism is a term that definitely you will hear about if you look into the arab israeli conflict um, which is because it is considered to be, you know, a land that's been taken over by settler colonialism. So that might give some framing to what my guest Rachel speaks
1: about this week. So this episode, we're lucky enough to have two PhD researcher students helping us to explore the topic of abundance through their research, but also through their personal and lived experiences. And I'm speaking to the first of those, Beth Stratford, who's a PhD student at the University of Leeds. She's writing about the threat of rentier power in a resource-constrained future. She's involved in a number of organisations, groups and movements that are focused on shared responsibility for making sure that everyone has access to life's essentials, And that includes being a member of the social guarantee task force an advisor to positive money and the co-founder of london renters union who we've had on a previous episode actually all about democratic housing and how we can live differently and own or occupy property differently she was also a lead author on the uk's path to the donut shaped recovery and Land for the Many, which was a report that was published in 2019 and proposed a radical but practical change to the way that land in the UK is used and governed. What really excites me about Beth is her existence in the space of both theory and practice. So she has a deep, deep knowledge of the academic thinkings in theoretical foundations, but she also very much engages in applying them through practical actions. Um, But I'll stop talking and let her share her thoughts when it comes to how we can reach the utopia of an abundance mindset and existence.
2: I think of land as um, uh, the sort of most fundamental component of our common inheritance. So it's a gift from nature. Nobody created it. Um, But I also think of it as the most fundamental source of power um, in our society for those who control it. Um, And that's not just because we all rely on it um, for our basic survival. We need raw materials and soil to grow our food in and space to live in. Um, But it's also because if you own land, it is much, much cheaper and easier to borrow money, uh, because land is this asset with enduring value that you can use as collateral when when you go to a bank. And if you don't own land, then it's really, really expensive to borrow money. And so land gives you a great deal more opportunity. It's a massive source of advantage. And the kind of privatisation and enclosure of what used to be common land, has created a real power imbalance, which is what enables um, capitalist exploitation, basically. Um, And we we don't often think about that because the idea that you could be born on this earth without an automatic right to access land or its resources has become completely normalized. We don't question it. Um, But the reality is that if you can't access land, then you don't have any means of survival, any means of self-sufficiency, except for by selling your labour. There's a quote that that I read recently from a political economist who was writing 200 years ago, and I thought it summed things up really well. Um, He's talking about the enclosure of land. And he says, from this moment, labour, that's working people, cease to be free. A man cannot exercise his faculties without paying for the permission to do so. He can't make use of his limbs without sharing the produce of his labor with those who've contributed nothing to the success of his exertions everywhere the labourer must purchase the permission to be useful <laughs> and and I think that's like there's a meme that's been going around on the internet as well that sort of sums that up in, a, in another pithy way there's a man and a chimp talking to each other and the man is saying lol you're such a dumb creature and the chimp saying well you're the only creature on earth that's paying to live here Um, and I think that kind of (laughs) sums is a good way of getting us to question what's become completely normalized for us.
1: Yeah I I love that I love what you said there Beth and your sort of uh, perspective on land because this is the last episode in a four episode series and I think what you said said there has been captured in the conversations that we've had across the board so we've spoken about um land and belonging we've spoken about land and movement we've spoken about land and um, healing and everything you say there has been personified in what people have been saying about access to land about what right we have to be on land about what right we have to do things once we are on that land and all of that those things so I think it's really powerful Um, before we move on to exploring in a little bit more depth some of the themes that you brought up there I want to actually ask you again, to define one of the key themes of this episode in, from your perspective, and that is abundance. What does the term abundance um, sort of mean to you? And abundance in, in terms of land as well, because you've spoken there um, about land almost as something that some do and some don't have access to. And I guess the word abundance brings forth images of like um, surplus and a lot. So what, yeah, in the context of land, what does abundance mean to you?
2: I mean, I would say just quite simply that abundance means not just having enough to survive, but having enough to have meaningful freedom and develop your capabilities and live the good life. And clearly, a lot of people don't experience um, land to be abundant, but that's because of how it's distributed. And that's because of the uses that are prioritized um, for for land. And I think it's, you know, it's quite evident that land is not going to be abundant if we continue to govern it in the way that we do govern it. There isn't the sort of physical and ecological space for everybody to enjoy the kind of private luxury that the elites currently enjoy. If everybody sought to have tennis courts and swimming pools and second homes, then newcastle would have to expand to be the size of london and london would have to expand to cover most of england Um, but what there is space for there is the physical and ecological space for everyone to enjoy public luxury you know we have got the room even on our crowded islands for magnificent parks and playing fields and public swimming pools and nature reserves and allotments to meet the needs of all a need to access beauty just as much as a need to access what we need to to Um, So I, yeah, I would say that if we want to deliver abundance for all with land, then a guiding principle ought to be private sufficiency and public luxury, as Monbiot puts it.
1: I love that. Um, So in your introduction there, you spoke about land being at the centre of the housing crisis. And I know that one of the organisations you work with is the London Renters Union, and um, we've actually spoken to them in a previous episode when we explored the concept of democratic housing. We spoke to Amina and she shared the organization's mission to transform the housing system so that everyone has access to an affordable, secure and decent home. Um, yeah. And as you've just said there, um, I mean, if we're to look at things purely factually, there is a lot of land in the world <laughs> um, mm. and there's more than enough for its current inhabitants to occupy and maybe Mm. not for us all to have swimming pools like you say but just for us to physically be here Um, and Mm. that's humans animals and nature Um, and when you look at statistics in the UK um, where we're recording this podcast from um, it's estimated that I think between sort of the high 80s and the high 90s so about 88 and 99 percent of land is actually undeveloped on Um, so But then at the same time, government statistics show that we have loads of empty homes. I think the latest statistics are that there's over 200,000 homes that have been empty for over six months. So when you look at these statistics, it would suggest that there is literally an abundance, like enough, more than enough um, in terms of homes for everyone to be in. So why do you think that this mission um, of the Land Renters Union has not been achieved? What, What are the barriers?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point that you make. It's so it's so important for us to stress that, um, that that not only that there is enough land, but that there is enough residential land already that there isn't there is sufficient housing. The housing stock has grown faster than the number of families or households who want somewhere to live since the mid-90s. When the housing boom took off, um there were fewer somewhere around 600 700,000 surplus homes and there's now well over a million surplus homes so if if prices were just shaped by this relationship between the number of houses and the number of people who need somewhere to live then we would have expected prices to fall over that period and they haven't fallen and that's because the problem is not insufficient the problem is not a lack of abundance the problem is that um, we have too much money chasing the housing stock that we have, and that's for two reasons basically. First of all, we've got too much demand coming from investors, landlords, people who want second homes um, so that they go up in value, um, tax um, dodgers, and, and money launderers who are using homes to discard, you know, transfer basically launder money. Um, And then the other side of the problem is that banks are creating too much mortgage credit. This might sound a bit technical, but if you think about the fact that most people, when they buy a house, they're not just using their savings. They're using money that's borrowed from the bank. So if the bank is willing to lend them more, then they can bid more in the housing market. So if banks is willing to lend everybody a bit more, then the prices just creep up and up. If you see, it. so it helps one person, they can kind of stand on tiptoes to bid a bit more. But if everybody's standing on tiptoes, then nobody gets a better view. If you see what I mean, and this is a really powerful feedback loop, this, this um relationship between bank lending and sort of speculative investor behavior, because the more prices go up, the more desperate people are to get hold of houses and escape the private rented sector, but also to use houses as financial assets and then. The more they're willing to borrow, uh, the more banks pump money in. And then the more banks pump money in, the more prices rise and you go around in this circle. So um, we've got to sort of intervene in this really vicious cycle and we need to reduce the attractiveness of homes as financial assets, as kind of cash cows. And one way to do that, this takes us back to the, the London Renters Union and what um, other um tenants unions are pushing for is is by correcting the imbalance of power between tenants and landlords because that's one of the key things um that sort of kicked off this whole buy to let frenzy um was was thatcher basically dismantling all the all the protections and rights that tenants had enjoyed um and so now with the UK is really an outlier <laughs> compared to the rest of Europe, um, we have some, the highest rents and we have some of the weakest protections anywhere in the developed world for, for renters. So that would be one, one part of the solution. And I guess another part would be taxing land and property more fairly. So taxing empty homes and taxing the capital gains, the sort of windfall gains that investors get um, just by owning property and have it having it sort of increase in value over time, those would be two really effective interventions.
1: Yeah, um, I like where you ended there because literally as you were speaking, that was going to be my next sort of question because I was just thinking about the fact that in that same episode, actually, we explored the fact that home ownership is higher in the UK than any other European country, um, mm. and that the alternatives, like more shared forms of living, like housing co-ops and stuff, are a lot more common across Europe than they are here. And I was going to yeah. ask you why you feel this is, and I think you went some way to answering that in the sense when you spoke about the, the power dynamics and why maybe people... There seems to be almost this obsession with the notion of sort of ownership and uh, man's home being his castle and all of these concepts that we don't see shared and necessarily with our, our um, neighbouring countries. Um, Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to explore, is this a cultural thing? Is it like you say, um, based in politics? Um, what, what is this notion of sort of having to own land and having to own property?
2: Well, I mean, the survey data is really interesting on this because it jumps um, during the 80s, basically, uh, um, (laughs) as a result of of very specific policy changes. So the survey data shows that people overwhelmingly aspire to, to home ownership and they're willing to take out massive debts to that end because of the insecurity of renting and because of the expense of renting compared to having a mortgage and because of how much wealth you can get just by sitting back and owning a house so for 10 out of the last 20 years in London the houses have earned more in annual increase than anybody can go out any average person can can earn by going out to work for a whole year so um, it's sort of no wonder I think that there is this um, bias towards ownership in in the UK and I'd say It's not, it's so, you know, that's a big part of the story is the sort of dismantling of of tenants' rights. Um, uh, So actually, if you look across Europe, it's very common to find um, rent controls. So um, in Austria, in Denmark, in France, in the Netherlands and Sweden, they all have rent controls that regulate the initial rent that landlords can charge. And then there's a further 10 European countries, which, Regulate the rate of rental increase within tenancies. Um, it, it's much more common across um, Europe for tenants to be protected from so-called no-fault evictions. So they're pre- that landlords don't have the automatic right to evict tenants who haven't broken any terms of the tenancy, tenancy agreement, as is the case in the UK. Once the initial six-month or twelve-month fixed term is over landlords only need to give you two months notice to get out. And that uh, is one of the key reasons why it's really, really difficult for tenants to push for repairs, um, push for landlords to uh, deal with issues of damp and broken boilers and so on, um, because they face the very real threat of landlords doing retaliatory evictions So that kind of weakness of protection for tenants is a really big reason, I think, why why there's such an attraction um, around home ownership. But also because we've seen taxes shift gradually off property and onto labour. So it used to be the case that most of our taxes were raised through taxation of property and land. And there's been a, a shift away. Uh, So, for example, there used to be this tax that most people don't know about called Schedule A, which kind of balanced things up between renters and and, and homeowners. So Schedule A taxed what's called imputed rent. Imputed rent is kind of like the money that you save by not having to pay rent because you own your house. And And that kind of saving, if you like, used to be taxed to try to sort of balance things up between homeowners and tenants. And then that got... Um, scrapped in 1963 and in its place there was a relief introduced a tax relief introduced for mortgage homeowners so that they could offset their um mortgage interest costs against a tax bill this is perhaps getting too geeky um <laughs> but on top of all of these sorts of things we've also had um Governments dismantling the pension, uh, you know, gradually reducing the value of pensions. So now we're told if we want to have any security in our old age, we have to have an asset of our own. Um, And we have all this rhetorical praise as well for home ownership coming from politicians about how it supposedly fosters values of independence and self-reliance. So there's just this constant sort of bombardment of messages telling people that they really need to own their own home. And I think that's probably a very large part of of why um, there is such a desire for home ownership in the UK.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important what you said there, actually, because it spoke not just to the sort of quantity debate in the sense of abundance, but also what you've raised and what um, sort of the London Renters Union uh, mission speaks to, which is also the quality debate um, and that Mm -hmm. sort of notion of decent housing as well. Like you say, um, part of the reason is because people are seeking a level of control over the standard of where they're living as well. Um, Exactly. As this is so ingrained, it seems, in our culture, in the UK at least, Beth, why do you think people should think differently in this really individualistic capitalist system that we live in? Um, Why is it sort of important that the universal relationship with land and one another, I guess, um, why is it important that access to land is fair then? Um, What are the benefits for making land accessible to everyone, um, for all of the people that maybe don't have just the purely moralistic (laughs) um, notion of equity. Um, Yeah, why should people start to think differently
3: about this?
2: It's very tricky at this stage for us to kind of um, redistribute physical parcels of land to everybody in society. But what we can do is we can recognise that land is a common asset, part of our common wealth, and that we can govern it and we can steward it in the interests of everybody. Um, and, you know, a, a very sort of crude uh, I'm not saying that this is the way to do it, but a kind of crude example of what I mean is you could introduce a land value tax or, or, or a property tax that's actually proportional to the value of property and use that revenue uh, and redistribute it as, say, Um, a citizen's dividend so everybody gets uh, uh, that money back in their pockets to kind of represent the fact that, yeah, some people are going to be using more than their fair share of our common assets, but they ought to be paying back into the common pot for that privilege and that wealth could be redistributed. And if it was, uh, maybe it wouldn't necessarily need to be redistributed as cash. It could be redistributed in the form of of really high-quality services, education and care and transport and broadband and all those things that we need. And if, that, if it was redistributed in that way, it would kind of create this basic foundation of security for everybody in society that we need, that we all need in order to be able to contribute and flourish and to kind of address this power imbalance that I talked about earlier that exists at the heart of capitalist exploitation, which means that it's so difficult to survive without selling your labour that people end up submitting to really poor working conditions and low pay uh,
1: because they have no other option. It speaks to the need for complete mindset shift, um, which I think I often I'm going to pose to you, actually, because I often wonder, whether we are getting closer to that mindset shift or whether we're getting further away because in some senses, I have hoped that we're getting closer because there seems to be a a wider general awareness of terms uh, or at least of systems. So I hear a lot more people speaking about capitalism as something that maybe isn't ideal and having a lot more language around alternatives and having a lot more interest in the notion of alternatives, even if they don't have time to fully explore those interests. But then at the same time, I look at sort of the more political spectrum. And from what I can see, it think, seems like things are changing for the worst. So you see things like the police crime and sentencing courts bill that seem to be actually impeding on our rights to try and fight for change. So I just wanted to post to you, um, how are things changing? Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Are they remaining the same? I mean, you've spoken about things sort of taking a downward turn since the 80s, since the notion of home homeownership um, Became even further entrenched through policy and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, where would you where do you sit in that argument? Do you think things are getting better, worse, or are we kind of stagnant with this?
2: That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think the material conditions are worsening. Um, you know, the, the 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 pain experienced by people at the sharp end of the housing crisis is getting more and more unbearable. I would say, uh, but I think you're right that consciousness is growing. And I find it really encouraging to see the, the tenants movement growing in strength um, and things that things that, that the big housing NGOs um, didn't really even dare to talk about um, five years ago, like think, and 10 years ago, uh, um, things like ending no-fault evictions, things like um, imposing rent controls. Um, We're now finally getting traction, even with the more conservative, slow moving big housing NGOs are starting to sign up to that kind of agenda. And it's really been led by new uh, tenants unions like the London Renters Union and Living Rent in Scotland and Acorn and Greater Manchester Housing Action and so on. doing that sort of uh, graft of going door to door and running stalls and, and helping people resist their illegal evictions and so on. But that, that movement is
1: growing and I find that very encouraging and exciting. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, actually, Beth, is that as well as considering what land is sort of doing for us, I'm always conscious we've just had a whole season on the climate and climate justice (laughs) so now I'm very conscious that we should also think about what we're sort of doing to the land and about the sort of co-relationship. So in the sense of abundance I want Mm. us to sort of maybe shift from the notion of us um, as humans being here to consume land and sort of explore abundance also in that in that notion of sort of regeneration so the the idea that humans also contribute to land add to land um how does that sort of sit with the conversation we've been having um moving away from the idea of us as sort of yeah i guess consumers of land (laughs) and to more yeah co-dependence i mean sadly
2: we're not just not just through burning fossil fuels, but also through intensive agriculture and deforestation, we are degrading the capacity of the land that we do have. Um, So it's becoming harder to grow food on it. It's becoming less effective as a soak of carbon. Um, uh, The the plants are soaking up less of the carbon dioxide. Um, We're turning rainforest into desert. So this is a real this is a real threat to abundance, right, because we need to be tackling the root causes of climate change. We need to be shifting to regenerative forms of agriculture and land management. Um, We need to obviously stop prioritizing really wasteful uses of land like raising cattle um, for food um, and golf courses and so on. Um, one of the extra threats that I see coming down the road is that we've got all these corporate lobbyists who are pushing for us rather than actually tackle the root causes of climate change that we ought to be taking vast swathes of land to grow bioenergy crops that then get burned in power stations so that we can supposedly capture and bury the carbon and again that is just increasing the pressure on land it's it's land for energy is going to be in direct competition with land for food um and so yeah these things are all all uh, all connected Um, So so right now, theoretically, we do have enough land to meet everybody's needs if we just managed it differently. But the danger is that we're degrading it at such a rate that at some point we won't have enough land to meet everybody's needs, sadly, because we'll have turned so much of it into desert um, and destroyed so much biodiversity and, and richness around us. That's a rather depressing <laughs> message. Yeah, we're
1: going to move on to something hopefully empowering for, the, for our last couple of questions. But I mean, I think one thing that the, the previous season taught me is that even those who are experts in this field are struggling at the moment to sort of pinpoint mm-hmm. solutions just because of the urgency of mm-hmm. the need to find them. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, on something slightly more positive, You've spoken a lot about power um, in our conversation, Beth, and and how much um, land is linked to power, or rather maybe how much lack of access to land takes away our power. Um, Mm. And I think that's from what I can hear from what you've been saying, that's both in an individual and collective level. um, But I've also heard a lot in what you've said about resistance and how we can harness our individual power again (laughs) to resist this change and to... to, um, to change the the course of things. Um, Mm. So yeah, I want to explore that again, if people have been listening to what we've been saying, feeling inspired, but maybe a bit overwhelmed, we always like to finish on some tangible things that people can do to sort of contribute to this change. So if people want to fight for sort of land justice, fight for people's increased access to land, um, maybe that's fighting for renters' rights, all of these things what would you say are some first steps that people can take
2: i would say join a union join a renters union (laughs) definitely Um, and if you're a homeowner then then donate to a renters union because it feels like that's a really powerful space of collective power building at the moment one of the things is to is to is to is to push for an expansion of the right to roam. So this was something that was introduced in um, some legislation, in the Countryside and Rights of Way Act in, in 2000, um, which was really, you know, good first step in giving people access to some of our most beautiful landscapes Uh, landscapes, but it only covers a real fraction of the countryside, so we only have freedom to roam over 8% of England, and 3% of the rivers in England and Wales are are accessible to to kayakers and so on, Uh, whereas over in the border in Scotland, um, the law actually actively encourages people to swim and walk and camp and kayak and climb and really connect with with nature. and so the idea is that we should be pushing for that right in the in the uk as well um and so there is a, a website called right where people can go and sign up to a mailing list and get, they can get details of mass trespasses that are coming up that they can get involved with um so that's a sort of uh, another positive um and empowering thing that people can get involved with and meet like-minded people <laughs>
1: Okay, so before we end, Beth, I'm going to throw in the question that usually stumps our guests the most. We ask it to every guest that comes on our episodes and it's usually the one they're like, oh, and that is when will your work no longer be needed? I think everyone that works towards some form of social change, eventual mission is that that change is no longer needed because it's been achieved. Do you think that will happen in your lifetime or when do you think your work, the work that you're fighting for will no longer be needed? I mean,
2: the work's never the, the work's never over, is it? But I mean, I, I guess, like you know, in terms of sort of modest, more modest goals, um, I would. Most of the focus of my work has been on on the housing system, and I would really like us to get to a place where we had for people to be at no disadvantage if they don't inherit housing wealth from their parents. So that at the moment, obviously, over time. Whether or not you inherit housing wealth from your parents is becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger um, factor shaping your life chances and your opportunities in life. And I think we need to get to a place where you don't end up spending more money if you if you can't if you can't buy a house through your pet inheriting money that the the state of the public housing is so such good quality and so affordable um, that uh, that we move away from what you described earlier, that obsession with home ownership that has has grown up in the UK. Um, and I would like in fact to see much more land being brought back into common ownership as well. So um, you you know one of the things I talked about in land for the many, was a proposal called the common ground trust which separates out the ownership of bricks and mortar from the ownership of the land underneath so that the land can be gradually brought into common ownership and people can still have secured secure home secure home ownership and chain you know paint their house and extend their house and build their house in whatever way they want but the land underneath which is the fundamental common asset that nobody created, and whose value is the result of the product of everybody's work. that ought to be, I think, in a form of common ownership. And there are different models for achieving that, which we talk about in in land for the many, but I would I, I would say that I would be satisfied um, if we if we got a, a, a much higher proportion of of land into some form of common ownership.
0: So um, my guest this week, Rachel, is a PhD candidate investigating how discourses of racial justice and diasporism, which you will have heard defined in a previous episode, provide a means for radical politics of co-liberation and anti-racist decolonial land practices. Um, Decolonial being the opposite of colonial. Um, She has spent 12 years working on food-related issues as a campaigner, market gardener and researcher. For the last five years, Rachel has been part of a housing cooperative establishing the land-based community Bodfregan? I hope I pronounced that right, um, which manages four acres of mixed land. Oh, four, Fizayo's favorite number. (laughs) Four acres of mixed mixed land where she lives in community with seven adults and four children. There we go. It's all very, very lucky this week.
3: So land for me has, it's always been like the site of my connection to nature, to the more than human. I've worked as a grower. Um, growing vegetables and market gardening. So it's that site, that place that um, that connects me to my community and makes me feel like I belong. Um, And then simultaneously, it's also, and I guess this is my engagement um, with it academically, I can't help but kind of interrogate it, what land means. That as a researcher, uh, and through this kind of like ongoing thinking about what land means, I've, I guess I've become increasingly outraged um, by how much we overlook land as this site of, of power, um, and how much um, that manifests as as injustice by who isn't isn't given access to land. So it has this not just a duality it has more than more than that it has it has so many meanings land
0: i feel like meaning is almost going to be like the defining kind of factor of this interview today because i i in, when i was looking into your work like even i was like hearing words i hadn't heard before um and that's partly just because of you know we come from such different like i guess just completely cultural different cultural backgrounds but the main word that kind of kept coming up, which was definitely a new one to me when I was reading through you guys' kind of literature, was shmita. And am I pronouncing that right?
3: Yeah, shmita. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I um, mean, it's, it's so great to talk about shmita. Shmita is a new concept for me as well. So, shmita is not something that I grew up knowing about. Okay. It's, I feel bad about um, it. <laughs> yeah, great. I, I mean, shmita is, I think, something that. Jewish people who are engaging in land justice have become interested in this idea of Shemitah quite recently, probably over the last 10 or 20 years, or we put it in Shemitah cycle, so we can put it in the last seven, 14 years. (laughs) And um, it's a, Shemitah is a teaching from the Torah. So um, it describes like how we can be in good relationship with land, and it does that by by containing ideas about rest and and release, um, and also it contains like quite radical economic ideas. But in its um, anyway, in its most basic form, Shemitah describes a kind of seven year rotation um, of how we engage with land, so that you would farm for six years, and in the seventh year you would not cultivate at all. So that's the kind of basic framework of what Shemitah is. And, and, and Shemitah is, is the year that you rest. Shemitah is the year that you don't cultivate, that no one is laboring. Um, uh, and it resonates, I guess, with a, a concept that might be much more familiar to people as a Jewish concept, which is like is Shabbat, where we have our six days where we work and on the seventh day we rest, right? Um, so it's really similar to that. It's just a kind of like upscaling of the <laughs> land. Um, so, yeah, on, on and then on this Shemitah year, you don't cultivate at all. Um, any food that does grow is shared by everyone. It's not doesn't belong to anyone in particular. So that food might be um, food that is kind of perennial crops. So crops that don't have to be sown every year but grow by themselves and it might be wild foods that are growing. Um, And you're meant to like literally tear down the fences and like everyone gets to eat of the land and it doesn't belong to anybody. And so that includes all humans, but it also includes all animals. So you're not keeping anyone or anything from accessing food. Um, And also any leased land or borrowed land is returned. Um, and all debts are cancelled as well wow. so it's like <laughs> sounds like a really great year <laughs> it's a great
1: year it's a
0: great year <laughs> why is it only once every six years <laughs> could it, it needs to be can we scrap the first six and just kind of start with the seven
3: yeah start in this i know sometimes i'm like is it radical enough like this <laughs> once <you just> <laughs> every <laughs> six years
0: <laughs> um okay right i mean that okay that there is there is there is a lot there, I mean, especially in terms of every t- all the things we've explored, both in this season, but actually with Untelevised in all of our seasons, um, you know, breaking down kind of current systems, current models, you know, questioning actually our ideas of ownership and possession yeah. and the capitalist models that we know, borders, fences, all of this stuff. Um, just for anybody listening who maybe doesn't know, the Torah is the main Jewish kind of text, right? Like, for example, yes. like the Quran or the Bible or. Yeah. OK, fantastic. Um, okay, so yeah, this was the word that struck me when I was looking to, through your stuff, and I was like, "Wow, so so profound and so all-encompassing." And actually, you know, as you say, there are just these words you're using that are almost sort of poetic and spiritual, and you know, very hopeful words like release and reset and renewal and rest. I mean, I, I saw all of these in in on your website, forgiveness, even. So like, it's it's very. It, it it does really really feel like this incredibly kind of like positive and actually healing process. And our previous episode was about healing um, mm-hmm. land and its relationship to us in terms of healing. So, I guess with all these words, then like how do you feel that they kind of relate? to land like to us as humans but our relationship to land like i hear these words and they sound a bit like something i might hear at like a yoga retreat or you know if i I don't know if i was going if i was reading some kind of self-help book or whatever but like in the kind of jewish context specifically which is obviously you know historically incredibly significant um you saying like land is shared and you know leased land is is returned and there are no fences and there are no borders that's obviously very significant in our kind of current political history so how do you see yeah what is what is the significance of those words and and how do they fit within this probably incredibly brutal and unhealing current system that we have around land
3: i mean it's really powerful to hear you talk about how it relates to lots of other explorations of justice that you've been, or, you know, capitalism, or, you know, just the kind of like current system that we talk about, like, it's, I think one of the things that I found for me is to recognise that there is teaching or like guidance from my own culture, that speaks to um, a kind of radical idea of change of like current um, systems of oppression. And sometimes it's really powerful to just like, go back and find something that comes from your own history or your own histories and go, ah, that, you know, that is, that speaks to how I want to be politically in the world. Um, And I think as, Jews who have got these kind of many histories all over the globe of being detached from land um, for thousands of years, that this kind of remembering of of a land based history, of an agrarian history, can actually be really healing. Um, And for me, I think the power of the message of Shemitah, but also of feeling as a, I identify as a diasporist, I identify as a a Jew that that belongs to the land where I am. That's what I mean by being a diasporist. That um, this kind of message, this kind of like strong ecological and and quite economic message that isn't um, about possessing land um that that's it you know it's it's non-nationalist it's kind of yeah This kind of like tearing down the fences like the land belongs to all of us it can't be owned it you know that that makes me feel it gives me permission to some extent to be able to belong where I am when I think it's easy to not feel a sense of belonging as are people that have kind of been in a permanent state of migration. And actually, sometimes I feel like my only access to being able to belong is through my whiteness rather than being able to belong as a Jewish person. And so it's very healing to have a narrative that allows me to belong in my complexity Mm. as a Jewish person on this land. So I think that's um, one of the profound things about these, these stories when you find them, these messages when you find them.
0: I mean, I kind of feel like Rachel, you've almost just like perfectly kind of like started to <laughs> conclude um, this season where we've literally got, you know, started with movement, you know, like land the people that are literally moving and maybe don't belong to land. And then we've explored what it means to, to belong and to belong to land. And then we started talking about healing, healing ourselves, but also maybe healing the land. And so now here we are with kind of, and what next, right? What could really be, with all of that in mind, what could be a kind of like much bolder and more ambitious vision for the world, right? Like what does it mean to really enter into a state of abundance where land is not scarce and where, you know, we're not kind of fighting over it. And as you say, like where we actually you know we we belong we heal and then <laughs> we get rid of all like own land ownership for example um but um so you mentioned a word there like diaspora and being diasporist um and again like for anyone who might not actually quite know what that means or, or maybe sort of technically know what it means but not quite understand it's again um its significance or its context like like very, very literally what does a diaspora or being diasporist mean? Um, And I guess, again, how does that then relate to land? I guess it by default kind of does, but how does it?
3: Identifying as a diasporist, for me, it's kind of like a, it's quite an active, um, like framing of what it means to be a Jew living, um, I guess, somewhere else in the world. There's the kind of... um, like mythic or historical land of Eretz Yisrael, which is somewhere in the Middle East, where Israel Palestine roughly is now. Um, and when we talk about being in diaspora as Jews, we're talking about not living there. However, for me, diaspora includes a kind of like seeding and uh, a, and a kind of rooting in another place. Um, and so choosing a diasporic identity is choosing to identify with the, the thousands of years of Jewish histories that have existed not in that place, not in this other place. Um, uh, and not necessarily in relation to that other place, although we have some relation to it. <laughs> it's complicated. Um, but I think it's a reclaiming diasporic. Diasporism becomes a kind of a choice to engage with the multiplicity of Jewishness. It becomes a choice to recognize that Jews have lived all over the world for thousands of years and that that history is almost what makes us Jewish. That that we're fundamentally a multiracial people that come from everywhere. Um, so it, it's, it's a political ideology. It, it's choosing um, this non-nationalist and non-Zionist uh, formation or idea of, of our Jewish personhood, of how we identify. Um, and that gives us then an, a different way to, to um, identify with land, to belong on land, that doesn't say you can only belong over there that says that we can belong here, where we are. Um, so it's, and that we can belong where we are in this like non-territorial way.
0: You've kind of repeatedly said throughout this interview, like breaking down ideas of ownership, you know, or like getting rid of, of, of literally kind of like nationalist borders and where we're supposed to be. Like, I mean, like my family's from Iran. I've never been there because I can't go there. Um, and I live in Europe, so that would make me a sort of Iranian diaspora, right? Iranians who are not in the land that they're sort of supposed to be, which I guess is Iran, but where are we, any of us, supposed to be? And I guess in this day and age, it probably seems that it's almost more normal that people are migrating and moving and not living where they should have been or originated compared to the people that do. And we're seeing that yet again right now as we speak, as we record this episode, Um it's all over the news with Ukraine, for example, right? And that's not even you know the tip of the iceberg of the amount of people and who are leaving their countries behind. I mean, you've so you've you know you've said yourself, you know, in some of our um like dialogue leading up to this interview, you know, you've described yourselves, and I, by yourselves I mean Jewish people, um, as people who have a history, you know, histories of displacement, migration, enslavement, and genocide. Um, but also as participants in settler colonialism. So like potentially we might view those as two sides of the same coin. Um, so again, for anyone listening, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping people maybe know what we mean by migration and displacement, I guess enslavement and possibly genocide as well. But so what do we then mean by settler colonialism? Um, and why might it seem surprising to people that the same group of people can both Um, Mm. have been sort of subject to migration and displacement and enslavement as well as, I guess, the instigators of settler colonialism. Why might that seem contradictory?
3: Settler colonialism is literally when one group of people have gone to another um, land and uh, started living there. And in the process, they can bring kind of their kind of constructs which enable them to to own land or hoard land or just displace people from the lands where um, they were living, Uh, but then also to kind of extract the the resources that are there and to claim them as, as their own. So the settler colonialism displaces the kind of, native or um, original inhabitants of a land uh, and replaces that those inhabitants with the kind of migrating population. And then the settler part of it is that they stay. You know, you have colonialism without settling as well. We're talking about a, a history or many histories where normally European, white Europeans have um, invaded, essentially, lands and displaced people, native people, and then remained there. Oh yeah, and then the kind of second part of the conversation, the question was, um, how, why would it, it seem contradictory? And this is a really interesting question, because I think that this doesn't speak to just the Jewish experience, but I will, I'll speak to it from the Jewish experience. So. Jews have got like this, loads and loads of different histories of of displacement and and oppression. I mean, we can literally start with, you know, this date, 1492, which is like the the date that we think of as like Columbus sailing across the Atlantic. It was the same year that all Jewish and Muslim people were also um, uh, banished from the Iberian Peninsula. It's like, all Jewish people were, were, were told to, to leave this area of Europe the same year. And you also have like, obviously histories of kind of like rising antisemitism across Europe throughout the, the 19th century. Um, people will know obviously about the Holocaust. Um, and so these, there are diff- these many different times that, that Jewish people have been forced to migrate or been uh, victims of genocide or oppressed or kept from land for various reasons. And when you have these these moments or these histories of separation of people from land, um, which obviously happens when you displace native people from their land or in the history of of, um, slavery, of African slavery and and all over the world, like belonging to land can become a kind of symbol of resistance. It becomes like a symbol of, of the place where you get your, your spirituality and your connection and your health. Um, and land is the place where you get to, to be who you are as a people, and it gets to be where you have your community. So if you, you're kept from that, it becomes a kind of powerful thing that you wanna get back. Um, and the, the thing that's complicated is that Jews with white privilege, so Jews of European descent, you know, particularly Jews that are then migrating to um, the USA or Australia or Israel, um, have had this benefit of this kind of proximity to whiteness, which has allowed them to get access to land, which has allowed them to kind of, along with the, with with other settlers in those countries, um, Kind of continue to displace the native populations of those land and they're using these i call them you know it's the it's the master's tools it's use, using these kind of tools of whiteness um and kind of benefiting from from what is a, a very racist power structure a very racist legal structure and even though there's this kind of absolutely legitimate desire to connect to land as an oppressed people, if, if your mechanism to connect to land is through, um, is through these kind of like racist structures, then in doing that, you're continuously not only displacing the native population, but you're also um, recreating those power structures that oppress other Jewish people that all the Jewish people of color, all of the other black and people of color that exist in those lands are just continuously oppressed by those same structures. Um, so that's why it's complicated and how it can seem that um, this participation in, in settler colonialism seems like a contradiction for people that have been oppressed from land, but actually that the history can, can create that narrative um in a way that feels like it's giving a mechanism like a legitimate mechanism mm-hmm. of of land connection to some people and why we've got to then face that that complicity. I
0: think this just speaks so much to you know I
3: what maybe should be obvious, but maybe in
0: this day and age isn't obvious that again like nothing is completely like boxed and black and white. Like we're not living in a kind of like Marvel comic universe where some people are good and some people are evil and it's that simple. And therefore, if you've been oppressed, you're only oppressed and you are not capable of any you know, wrongdoing yourself. And equally, if you are like wrongdoers, then that's all you ever are. And that's all as a group of people, you will be identified as we're dealing here with, as you say, like hundreds and hundreds of years of history where obviously some people from a certain background will enact their I don't know rage or entitlement one way and others will another way um and I think you and I were just talking before we started this interview about the kind of almost like tribalism that we can sometimes fall into where people literally just think they have to choose a side and then like die hard stay on that side people people are complex Mm. and politics is nuanced and it's very rare that maybe in the real world <laughs> um good and evil is that so, so to put it as bluntly as that like good and evil is that clear right and 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 that marked for us to follow um and as you say it's almost maybe as though because you're dealing with a group of people who've been displaced so massively maybe there is almost a feeling of like entitlement like this is actually now like our like our do you know if we now if we now go and settle somebody else's land it's only because this was done to us for so long for example could be one mindset that that some people take right
3: yeah and uh, detachment and detachment and the, yeah from the, um, yeah that you have this desperation mm. um you know to feel belonging and this uh, this kind of lack of um recognition that there can that we can enact
0: the same wrongdoing that has, mm, has yeah. happened to us. Yeah. And, um, and, and I
3: guess we a very painful thing to look at. Mm,
0: mm. And, you know, I mean, you know, I'm sure as humans for our survival, we're very good at kind of employing sort of almost like a cognitive dissidence of, um, you know, whatever narrative suits us. We probably will find a way to make it um, make it fit or make it justified um it's getting very deep and it's getting very psychological Um, no 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 not at all um i'm totally complicit but um so i guess we've now like having kind of explored that full spectrum of what it might mean as a group of people to literally be at the you know bottom end of oppression right up to the kind of highest level of like power and you know colonialism um maybe having not you personally, but as again, as a, as, a, as a group of people experience that full spectrum of these issues we're dealing with, with land justice, um, would you say like, you know, what is the way forward? Like, would you say that this narrative that we've been sold, that land is scarce, and that as a global community, we're just destined to be in competition over it, Um, that if one group needs it another group by default have to be removed from it for example is that accurate for a start like emotion aside is it just actually accurate does that is that where if that's is that how the world is is is, is land that scarce Um, and if not um, how do we shift the mindset for one but also perhaps I guess the infrastructure that kind of allows that to happen like can we move away from a view of land as scarce and deficit to one of I guess abundance which I appreciate is a big question (laughs) solve it for me Rachel
3: one of the things I love about Shmita just to go back to that concept is it gives us this image of abundance right it gives us this quite utopic vision of like tearing down the fences like we were talking about earlier and eating from the land and like not even working and still eating from the land and I think the gift of this quite utopic idea um is that it kind of confronts our current reality which is that land access isn't just or fair so there's no doubt that a very few people own most of the land in the in the uk so there's a lot more land available I mean and the kind of simple answer is like there's a lot more land available if it was chaired out a lot more fairly that's like the simple answer to your question um uh, but that there's there's absolutely a kind of big shift in I mean maybe initially there's just a shift in policy uh, in kind of like uh, and ideas about like a better understanding of things like Reparative justice, which again Shmita speaks to, and kind of like giving land back and releasing debt, and all of those things that we were talking about earlier, um, that that could, are these kind of well actually quite big ideas that we need to grapple with in order to to maybe shift this narrative. Um, and then there are things that are that that do exist, but they all still feel very peripheral. Things like having more forms of common ownership and more forms of communal ownership and cooperative landholding, um, because they, they really undermine um, what has become this very normal idea of how we own land, which is like, as individuals, like possessing it as individuals. Um, and this kind of, yeah, this idea of how we, we can't believe it, it's become so normal that we would own land. Our own, by ourselves, and how kind of both ethically and economically harmful that is, um, and how it and then inevitably kind of like breaks this connection that we have to land, right? Yeah, but next are like it, it breaks this more than human connection to land because we own it and that makes it our possession, and that's wrong, um, so yeah I mean I think that there are there are mechanisms that already exist for how we might redistribute land more fairly but there's there's a lot to do in order to get to that place
1: yeah um, and I'm
0: quite aware Rachel that I've asked you to solve something which
3: <laughs> um, you know
0: like mankind has been grappling with um for forever so I guess Rachel like for anyone listening um, who who does feel inspired by anything they've heard here um, in fighting towards land justice in general, um, you know, short of overhauling the whole system, which we would really love to do, but like in the meantime, <laughs> sort of tomorrow, um, what would you say are some tangible, attainable steps that people can take to sort of support your work um, or just sort of support the you know the issues around land justice? more broadly you you know you referenced policy earlier and things like that like what can the average person quote unquote do now
3: well I think if you're really if you're interested in in the work that, that we're doing definitely look up McNafah arrets and they've just been doing um, you know six sessions all about Shemitah and land and reparative justice. Um, I think engaging with Lion land in our names mm-hmm. who are doing absolutely incredible work. Um, who were
0: on a previous episode in this season, uh, brilliant. yes, yes, go
3: back to that. (laughs) Engaging with their work is a really powerful way that we can think about um, what it means to do, yeah, reparations in this this country and and what that means. Um, And also just going and getting involved with community land projects in your area, going and finding out what people are doing to put their hands in the soil and connect to land um is a really meaningful first step for for engaging with land and your connection to it
0: um brilliant and, and again for obviously for anyone listening um we will be sharing like all the resources that rachel has referenced and, and there is the previous episodes in this season in case you happen to have kind of landed on this episode first um So Rachel, um, we ask this of every person (laughs) who we speak to on this podcast, because I guess with social change, our aim is that we eventually get there and that we don't need to then create more change. I mean, the world will always change. But um, so when, if ever, do you think that your work will no longer be needed?
3: (laughs) It, I think that you could ask me this question on different days, and I would be able to answer it so differently. And um, when, if ever, would my work no longer be needed? I think um, in this kind of beautiful vision where everybody has kind of equal access to, to land and food and health and uh, you know the the fences are literally and ethically and in uh, all ways torn down it, it has this kind of beautiful um, vision to it um, but it just sometimes I, I do feel like we've got a huge huge long way to go to get to that place um, really challenging and confronting all s- structures that have been in place for, for hundreds of years. Um, so you are maybe catching me on a, on a day that is... Uh, realistic. Realistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I also think that we have this capacity for, for working towards that place together. You know, in the in the more hopeful way, like I I do see how all of our struggles are uh, are kind of bound to each other, and that there is this capacity for kind of co liberation if we can can find that kind of like common cause together, um, and and really shift the narratives together.
1: Wow. Um the last episode and we're going out with a bang even if I do say so myself I mean it's not like I'm contributing to the bang much it's our guests really <laughs> uh facilitating such a priv- the bang. yeah I'm facilitating the bang um such a privilege to have people with such knowledge insight and practice in these spaces um but the question I always ask Mona what stood out to you this episode
0: Yeah, there was something about this episode which kind of, yeah, began quite sort of abstract and almost quite spiritual. And me and Rachel went into some, you know, quite like, yeah, you know, quite sort of, poetic concepts almost um, which again I guess is because we've been saying this whole season the human experience is is holistic it's emotional it's spiritual it's psychological it's mental it's physical it's everything but again it kind of comes back down to these very basic things which is that all of us need need and want to feel safe and feel we belong and feel we have community and feel we have support and feel that Mm. our lives are not so agonizing and stressful that they're making us sick and you know that we can actually stop and breathe that we can breathe in fresh air that we can stand on land that you know has been nurtured well and therefore nurtures us um, and actually just how we get to do that really, you know, and some really tangible examples of that um, and how our guests in different ways are all working day to day on challenging the current system, which leaves so many people feeling, not just feeling disempowered, that makes it suggest that it's all in their heads, you know, actually in a lot of ways being made to be disempowered by having such little ownership of anything and agency and resource and space and land and, I don't know, but I think you know there was certainly my the conversation I had you know, left me feeling sort of very like warm and up- uplifted and oh, not in a sort of cheesy way, but you know, feeling like there are so many ways um to challenge that narrative,
1: yeah, yeah, and building on sort of the sense of disempowerment that you speak about and can be quite easy to fall into and having these conversations. What I loved was how Rachel sort of transformed the concept of diasporism for me, because obviously I've always identified as being part of the diaspora, but how Rachel put it as sort of a sense of resistance um, and being a diasporist as like an active word and a, a, a sort of reclaiming of um, identity really empowered me. Um We've spoken a lot about sort of belonging and feeling welcome and all of these things. Um, But Rachel kind of gave, for me, the way she spoke about being in the diaspora was kind of like a non-cheesy version of the saying, home is where the heart is kind of Mm -hmm. thing. She kind of really made it like this resistance thing where, no, this is where I belong and I'm claiming this. And, you know, I really loved how she transformed that. Um, And also, I guess, weave together all of weaving together all of the previous episodes i loved how um, the concept of Shemitah um, reminded me so much of the previous conversations we had been having. So like Farzana in our healing episode, she was referencing her culture and her religion a lot. Things like greeting trees being part of her religion or Tyler who was referencing um, how much his culture influenced his relationship land or um, Andre who was like, I just feel like we've had that constant sort of message of how our personal histories and how the land is so deeply sort of um, entrenched in all of our personal histories and stories and legacy and um, lineage and um, like customs and all of these things. And what excites me about that, like you say, is that it kind of suggests that all of our answers already exist, and they always have already existed. We just sort of need to go back to them. It almost, it's almost like we've strayed away from who we were meant yeah. to naturally be, Coming and back we, we just source. need to come back yeah. to who we are. And that's really exciting and empowering because it makes it so much more real and so much more achievable.
0: I mean, you know, and actually, again, just to bring us really down to something grounded and tangible. All those stats you read out at the beginning, you know, I mean, it's that simple. Like we, you use words like abundance and they might sound a bit hippie and then you mm-hmm. read out these stats and it's like, what was it, 94%? Of, of the UK is actually just not built on um, like that's mental to me yeah. right and so actually what on earth are we doing running around thinking that there isn't enough land like how is anybody I even homeless managed,
1: like it's mental I haven't even managed to explore 10% of the bit that's built on so imagine yeah. how much there is that's not you know even my little town or city of London seems big to me you know so imagine if that's just a 1% of all the land that's not built on. It's crazy, like you say, to think that we've somehow been sold this concept that there's not enough. Mm-hmm. like how (laughs) yeah
0: so actually the questions really are well then how the hell do we go out there and get it um and you know we've been speaking to groups in this period who've been doing it you know like whether it's lion who are going out there and trying to literally like you know redistribute land into the hands of people of color because they have historically you know been deprived of it or like what do we do and how do we collectively do that um And certainly with projects like London Renters Union, they're really literally trying to show us the power of unionising. And we've spoken with them before, actually, when we looked into housing.
1: So what is our collective power? Because clearly we have it. Yeah, exactly. I loved, again, I feel like a broken record with these slogans and t-shirts, but I loved how Beth put it when she spoke about private sufficiency and public luxury and the idea that none of us should be aspiring to have swimming pools and acres and all of this privately but we should all be fighting for having public lakes that we can all access and acres that we can all access publicly you know and how we get to that place and how we ensure as we've spoken about over the course of all of these episodes that everyone is included in that definition of public and even the people that we either knowingly exclude and have been vocally fighting for that for decades, centuries, like people of colour, black people, people that we kind of kind of see, but knowingly discriminate against and um, kind of sometimes let have a voice like disabled people or completely tend to just be invisible to us like travellers. I think we've had quite a lot of yeah exposure to those marginalised voices over this um series and i'm really glad we were able to do that in four episodes but yeah yeah, to really remember those people in that definition of public
0: and i think it's really worth you know reminding everyone here that this and these episodes have come out um of a report you know they've actually come out of a piece of work that the new economics foundation and shared assets put together looking at whether we need an english Um, land commission and so we again we're going to link to all of this because this is actually the explorative part um, before we almost get to sort of how do we now implement practices like how do we lobby how do we influence policy um these things first every it when when they approached us it was because you know everyone felt that this these conversations first need to be had and they need to be had in the public realm and not just amongst people who fight for land justice and hopefully now that more of you have heard these conversations actually please share your thoughts with us like what would something like a land commission look like what would it achieve what would it do like where do we need to go because actually you know we've just come out of a massively, you know, trans- transitional time in our modern history where people suddenly were confined to their mm. spaces if they had them and started rethinking space massively, started rethinking green space and public space and homes and what they mean to us and where we work and where we live and how joint they should be or not be and how actually lonely we are when we're disconnected from each other and actually should we have more community. And so this is this is the time, like this is lit- this is it like we've just had it all turned on its head for a while so we're
1: really this is the time to reimagine it it definitely is the time to reimagine it um and I guess my summary of the whole season is just when um we were summing up our conversations when I was summing up my conversations with Beth it really made me think how absurd is it that we've kind of got to a place where we feel that we own a part of this spinning rock that we all Mm. occupy temporarily. Maybe if we look outside of ourselves, just for a minute, I know it's really hard as humans. um, um, We can kind of see that we're so temporary. Our existence is so temporary. Even if we have a freehold that says 999 years, like Mm. we don't actually- That's a good freehold. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
1: Mine doesn't say that. (laughs) We don't actually well we might think we do but we're so temporary in our own quote-unquote ownership of this physical space maybe we should just try and exist on it um in our temporary way in the least destructive way to both one another and to the surface you know so yeah lots That's of practical ways but also profound I wanted Fizio. to end, you know I, my side hustle as a philosopher I wanted to end we almost
0: can't do our usual exit spiel now after Fazio's such profound poetic ending we can't now say please do follow us at I, I will. untelevised <laughs> underscore TV and rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and share your thoughts and your feedback I guess I just kind of did say it yeah. I pretend I didn't um, and yes, you can always email us at talktountelevised at gmail.com if you want to share equally profound reflections back to us. That's the digit two. Um, and yes, please honestly do share your thoughts on this season with us because this is actually meant to be um, a collaborative kind of explorative piece of work um, that we will share with our partners. And all the people you've heard from in this season are currently and actively working on issues around land justice in some way so they will be part of in all their many ways implementing hopefully those ideas um and then we would like we would we will update you um with the progress on that um because even though we are temporary we're here for a little while so let's try and you know do as well as we can yeah yeah it's still worth trying it's still (laughs) worth trying everyone that's another final t-shirt for you and um, we will be back at some point we don't know exactly when because again we're coming to a season close but if um, any of you want to work with us on further seasons you can also get in touch and it's been a pleasure
1: it really has thank you guys take care call me a dreamer
0: idealistic believer with my head in a cloud I don't want to come down, but my feet are planted on the start of the ground,
1: but my ground,
3: my ground is a cloud.